Uh, in in um, I don't know how many of you have heard of the author Malcolm Gladwell. It's one of my favorite storytellers. I think he's a great storyteller. He's almost as much as, as, a, as a sociologist as he is a journalist. And he wrote a book a few, a few years back called The Tipping Points and How to Look at the World Differently. And he starts off his book talking about hush puppies. Um, that's not that kind of hush puppies. <laughs> Those are the hush puppies we eat with fried catfish. I don't know if y'all have those up here or not, but uh, they're fantastic. But it's not those hush puppies. It's these hush puppies. Uh, <clears throat> the hush puppy shoe. And uh, for those of you who don't know, there were these shoes that are kind of made out of, out of crepe sole and, uh, and kind of a, uh, I don't know what you call the, the top of it, uh, suede. Yeah, kind of a suede top there. And uh, they ran for about 30 bucks a pair. And uh, if you're like my, if you're my age and you're going through school, your mom would buy those for you because they were cheap and they were comfortable, and uh, but they were definitely not cool. Uh, if you if you wore hush puppies, you were not cool. But in the mid '90s, something happened, and sales just took off for the hush puppies shoe. It uh, it went they went from selling like thirty thousand a year to selling 430000 a year. And, uh, and it, nobody could really understand why at first. We were kind of looking at what, what, they, what caused it to take off like that. And uh, the CEO of the company, uh, I think his name is Jeffrey Lewis, he even got an award, a fashion award, from the fashion industry for this. And when he received the award, he admitted, I had nothing to do with this. He said, we don't know what happened. There, were no, uh, there was no advertising campaign. Uh, no celebrities, you know, who came on and said, you'll be really cool if you wear hush puppies. Uh, there was no, uh, no graphics. Uh, there was, it did not come from the top down. It, was just, it just happened all of a sudden. Well, when they looked into it, what happened was there was some, uh, some kids in New York City. And for some reason, they latched onto it, latched onto hush, hush puppy shoes. And then it grew from that and then it just exploded and shoes, uh, the stores couldn't keep them on the shelves. Uh, every mall was, you know, had shoe stores were selling hush puppies and just took off out of nowhere. And it all happened because of some cool kids who were wearing them in New York City, and then they picked up on them and the trends just exploded. And my, Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell says this is the tipping point, that things will get, get more and more popular, and then it reaches this tipping point where it just becomes huge, and it just spreads throughout the culture. And he defined a pattern of this, and he said you can look at this pattern, whether it's hush puppy shoes or even murder rates in a city. You can start to see these patterns. And he says uh, this is what he identified. He said small changes that happen on the margins can lead to big effects. And these people's behavior starts to change. And then finally, the behavior reaches a tipping point, and change becomes rapid and dramatic with really no explanation. And I, I was thinking about that, that uh, theory that he gives, and I'm thinking, that's exactly how Mark is describing the gospel. That's how Mark is describing the growth of the kingdom of God when he comes. It's like, it's like you start to see these, these things happen on the margins, and people's behavior starts to change, and then all of a sudden it just takes off, and, and it just explodes. And we see this right in the beginning in the first chapter of Mark, and that we're just going to look at these, these three episodes as we end the chapter because I, I think they kind of all go together. And I think we're going to be looking at these episodes as they kind of hook together 
Although next week we'll probably just look at one. But that's exactly what Jesus was saying, too. He, he taught that. He said the kingdom of God is like what? A mustard seed. And it starts with this little tiny mustard seed and then starts to, starts to expand and expand and get bigger and bigger. And you see this dramatic change. He said this like yeast that's getting worked through the dough and it gets worked through the dough more and more and then all of a sudden you've got bread, you know, rising. And Jesus, this is exactly what he taught. And that's what I think Mark is saying here. And he's given us these rapid sequences, these rapid stories of what he calls the mighty works, the miracles. Miracles of nature, we'll see that a little bit later. A lot of miracles of healing, uh, healing bodies, healing people, uh, evil spirits, casting out evil spirits, and these things start to catch on. And so I, before we get into that, I want to mention, say a few things about miracles in the book, uh, in the book of Mark, really in the Gospels. <clears throat> and we'll talk about, there's always going to struggle with why some people are healed and some people are not. We will look at that probably next week. But I just want to say, what, we, what are we looking at when we read these miracles in the book of Mark or in any of the Gospels? That um, these mighty, mighty works. I think they are for Mark what signs are for John. You know, John is kind of famous for saying, this is the sign, the sign of this, and, and, and indicating who Jesus is. Well, I think Mark is doing that, even though he never uses the word sign like John does. I think he's, he's given us these miracles because they are signs that point to something. They are signs that, that give us information and tell us about something. And some people will think, well, the miracles are to show that uh, Jesus is God, his deity. That may be true to an extent. But we see these in other people. Moses, Elijah, Elisha, they did very, very similar miracles, but we don't call them divine. We don't call them, uh, we don't try to argue for their deity. What I think it's doing, Mark is doing here is he's giving us these miracles to point us to something else, to show us that this is what God is doing. This is who this person is, Jesus Christ, and this is what God is doing through Jesus Christ, God the Father doing through Jesus Christ, that there is this inbreaking of something, something new is happening. And I think that's what these miracles are saying, that the kingdom of God is yeah in operation. It's not something that's going to predict something or give us a taste of something. He's saying it is now in operation. This is what God is doing. This is who Jesus is, and this is what God cares about. So I think that's what he's doing here. And so we pick, up, pick this up in verse uh, 29. We're going to look at three episodes, verses 29 to, 30, to 45 this morning. Uh, I've titled it The Touchable Ones or The Healed Ones, and we'll hopefully understand that a little bit later. Um, <clears throat> did I do that right? I think I missed, missed something there, didn't I? That's there. It's, yep. What happened there? I didn't see any. Okay. Oh, well. I thought I put on some verses there, but I guess they somehow disappeared. I'm sorry about that. But we're going to be looking at the first episode <clears throat> in verse 29, and I'll go ahead and read it then since I don't have it on screen. Uh, <clears throat> after this episode in the synagogue where Jesus cast out this demon and, and it kind of caused a ruckus, he ends up going to Simon's home, Simon and Andrew's home. Uh, he kind of goes back to home, I think, almost a place of safety. When you look at the home through the book of Mark, he kind of uses home as this place of safety where the disciples can ask questions and they can, can debrief some things. And I think that's what's happening here. He says, now as soon as they left the synagogue, they entered Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. 
Simon's mother-in-law was lying down sick with a fever. And so they spoke to Jesus at once about her. And he came and raised her up by gently taking her hand. And then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And when it was evening after sunset, they brought to him all who were sick and demon-possessed. And the whole town gathered by the door. And so he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out, drove out many demons. But he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus comes in and kind of finds this, this, this bit of privacy in a home. And I think that's what he's trying to do, kind of recovering, maybe debriefing with the disciples of what happened in the synagogue. And there's, um, Simon's mother-in-law is sick. And so they tell Jesus about it. And he walks over and takes her hand and gently takes her hand, holds her up, and then raises her up. And she is healed of the fever. A couple of observations about this story. First of all, Jesus takes the initiative. I think this may be the only time that Jesus actually takes the initiative. I mean, the disciples tell him about it, but he walks over and, and takes her hand and heals her. And I think this is something that's really interesting, that he is aware of things that are going on, and he takes initiative to do that, because a lot of people, <clears throat> and I will say this mainly, it seems to be women, will not tell you that they're not feeling good. They will keep it to themselves. Oh, I'm all right, I'm all right, I'm all right. And they kind of, you know, I can give you some examples where that's the opposite, where the guy is always not, I don't know who, but some guys just always complain about being sick and, oh, I got this flu, I'm, I'm dying, I'm dying. But it seems like a lot of women just kind of keep that to themselves. They don't really complain a lot. And I think this is a good example of what we should be doing, that we need to be aware of these people, that there are a lot of people who will not tell you when they are hurting, who won't tell you that they're not feeling good, or for whatever reason, that they're depressed or whatever. And I think as believers, we need to be aware of that. And Jesus seems to be aware of that. And he goes over and he takes her hand, and then he, he, he raises her up, and this fever drops, and then he says that she served them. She served them. Now, it's easier for us in our world to say, oh, yeah, well, she's doing women's work. She's getting dinner ready. And maybe she is. I don't know. Maybe she, that's what it is. Maybe that's what she's doing. I don't know. But I think the word here is really interesting because it's the word where we get deacon from. And it's almost as if Mark is saying she became a deacon. Now, not an official deacon because the church didn't exist at that time. But in some positions, she was a servant she became a servant, a follower of Jesus Christ. And it changed her behavior. It changed who she, how she saw her. She it changed how she saw Jesus. And, of course, we know Jesus at the end of the book. He says the Son of Man, or the, or the human one, did not come to be served, but to serve others. And I think what Mark is saying here is giving us a taste of this, that he's going to tell us to the end that she became a servant. She became a follower of Jesus Christ, and she began to serve. And we get to the end of the book, and we see that Mark describes these group of women that follow Jesus around all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem to what? To serve. And so this healing is not just make her feel better. It actually converted her to become a disciple, and she became a servant to the people. And this little episode ends with this after the Sabbath crowd. After the Sabbath is over, they come at sunset to the door, and many are being healed, and demons are being cast out.
Crowd is another theme that you, we will see through Mark. I, I did a little, I have this computer program where you can plug in a word, and like in a split second, it tells you where it all appears. It's amazing. Well, crowd appears 38 times in the book of Mark. 38 times. And it's almost as if here in Galilee especially, it, it, it symbolizes something. It is the group of this, this large group. Mark uses a little bit of hyperbole here. He says the whole town's there. I doubt the whole town was there. But what his point is that this big crowd from the town is there, and they are ill, they are disposed, they are disabled, they are disenfranchised. It's kind of describing this, this, this cycle of poverty that exists in this, 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 uh, this province of Galilee, this mixture of Greek and Jew. And it's just this area of, of, of poverty. And he heals them. He heals many. Because in the ancient world, illness takes on a special flavor. Illness is, means the person is devalued. He's not important. They're defective. And they get ostracized from the community because they will infect the community. And they will weaken the community. And Jesus heals them, heals this group, and casts out the demons. This theme of Jesus defeating Satan is continuing on, as we saw from last week. It started off with the testing, and it's going to go on through the whole book of Jesus defeating Satan. That this kingdom that is in breaking into the world is a cosmic level. And when we think of demons being cast out, in our world we think hocus-pocus for the most part. Uh, we think of the exorcists. We think of these weird kind of things. But I think what, when, when we read about it in the New Testament, it's just that any Satan-shaped attack brings death. Any Satan-shaped uh, um, illness or any Satan-shaped uh, uh, revenge or whatever will bring death to the person. And Jesus is fighting that. That this salvation, this kingdom is cosmic. It's in, and this attack from Satan can be physical. It can be moral. It can be psychological. It can be institutional. Affect the institutions. And it's not going to bring life. And we have a Savior who is bringing the flourishing of life. It's interesting to me that Jesus' opponents never denied that Jesus healed or cast out demons. It's like they admitted it. They could see it with their own eyes. But what they did do was try to attribute his power to other things. Herod said, oh, it must be John the Baptist reincarnated. Uh, the scribe said, oh, no, that's Satan himself doing that. So they couldn't explain it away. They just had to say, maybe change the authority. But Jesus says, I've come with a new power and a new authority. The next scene, he tells them not to speak. He tells the demons not to speak and keep quiet. That's another thing we'll see over and over again. Keep quiet, keep quiet. Now, why does Jesus say that? I think a couple of reasons. We found out later that it hinders his movements because all the crowds are around him. But the other reason is Jesus knows that if you come along saying that you are Lord and you start talking about a new kingdom, you're not going to last very long. And I think Jesus knows my time is not ready for this yet. There are other things that need to happen before the cross. And so he's trying to encourage them not to speak. 
So he's coming to this question. He's healed this woman. He's raised her up. She becomes a disciple. And now he's, I think he has to go and find out some guidance from God the Father. From the Father he, he, from the God he calls Abba, Abba Father. And so the next scene, he goes out in the desert. Then Jesus got up early in the morning when it was still very dark, departed and went out to a deserted place, and there he spent time in prayer. Simon and his companions searched for him. When they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. He replied, Let us go elsewhere into the surrounding villages so that I can preach there too, for that is what I came here to do. So he went into all of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus is modeling something very important for us here. This, con this, this, this combination of contemplation and action. And I think he goes into the desert to truly seek guidance from the Father. What am I going to do? What is it you need for me to do? And I know when we talk about Jesus being God, we think, oh, he's, he's omniscient. He knows everything. Why is he going there getting guidance? Well, no, he's not. He gave up divine attributes when he became human. Okay? little theology here. We know he gave up omnipresence, right? Because he's in a local body. Why is it so hard for us to understand that he also gave up omniscience as the second person of the Trinity? And I think in this position here, he is in prayer to get guidance from the Father. And he has two options. He's saying, what do I do? Where do I go from here? And he has two options. One is to, to start a revolution, to revolt. Is this what I'm supposed to do? Am I supposed to start a revolution against the king, against the emperor, against the Caesar? Is that what I'm supposed to do? And if I set up this regime, how's that going to look? How are people going to take it? If I set up this regime and I say, yeah, you need to, for, to, uh, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, how's that going to wash on a new regime? Not very well. Not well at all. A lot of revolutions start with high ideals, but what almost always happens is we sacrifice the high ideals in order to get the power. And so those ideals kind of fall by the wayside in order that we get the power. And he says, this is not God's kingdom. This is not the way our God, Yahweh, is going to bless the nations through Israel. It won't happen through revolt, through revolution. He says, well, maybe it's quiet. His other option is to be a quietist, kind of the, kind of the monastery, kind of the monk approach, where we retreat to the desert, and we repeat the Lord's Prayer three times a day, and uh, we stay quiet, and, uh, and of course, if we do that, we'll be pure, uh, we'll, be, we'll be safe, but we'll also be useless. And so I think Jesus is coming out of this situation here. He's, he's been this, he's, he's kind of conflicted, what am I doing here? And it's very clear what he's got to be doing. He's got to preach the kingdom everywhere. He says, I've come to preach. This is what I came to do. The contrast is not between words and action. The contrast is either stay here in the spot or expand. And God's calling him to preach the gospel everywhere. 
through healing, through works, through words. St. Francis' famous quote, he said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. This is what Jesus is called to do. Do that. He has come out with a clear vision of what he is supposed to do to proclaim the kingdom of God everywhere. And then this last episode, there's another symbolic healing. He does what he, he says, what he, he does what he said he was supposed to do. And he says, now a leper came to him. <clears throat> so he went out into all of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him and fell to his knees, asking for help. If you're willing, you can make me clean, he said. And moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. The leprosy left him at once, and he was clean. Immediately, Jesus sent the man away with a very strong warning. He told him, see to it that you do not say anything to anyone, but go and show yourself to a priest and bring the offering that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But as the man went out, he began to announce it publicly and spread the stories wildly so that Jesus was no longer able to enter into any town openly but stayed outside in remote places. Still, they kept coming to him from everywhere. This is the man who comes with a leprosy. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of disease it is, but the way that Mark presents it is this, it's the kind of skin disease that's impossible to cure. It's like raising the dead, probably like Hansen's, degree, Hansen's disease. That's probably what it is. And because he's a leper, he is unclean, he is ostracized, he cannot worship, he cannot communicate in the, in the community, can't live in the community. He has to be, be live in one certain section and beg. So he's completely ostracized, and he comes to Jesus, and he worships. He falls down with his heart full of love and, and, and longing and says, if you really want to, you can do this. And Jesus is moved with compassion, and he says, I do. And with two words, he says, he says, go and be clean. I want to be clean. And he's clean, and the leprosy leaves him. And Jesus touches him, and that is so important. Because just as he touched the mother-in-law, he also touched the leper. And instead of the leper contaminating Jesus, Jesus' cleanliness cleanses him. Jesus restores the ostracized person. The flow goes the other way, just like it does in the hemorrhaging woman we'll see later on. And I said this before, we've got to realize as Christians that contamination doesn't just work one way. It's so easy to want to retreat and, and insulate ourselves and isolate ourselves because we don't want to get contaminated by the world. But what about us contaminating them with the gospel, with the grace of Jesus Christ? Contamination can go two directions. And that's what happens here. Jesus lays his hand, and the cleansliness goes on to him. And then he tells him, says, keep quiet. Two, in two instructions. Keep quiet and go to the priest. And he doesn't do either one of them. <laughs> but honestly, would you? Would you keep quiet? I, I don't think I would. I don't think I could keep quiet. So it wasn't Jesus' first choice, but the guy goes out and starts spreading the word. And I think Jesus was telling him to go back to because he wants to respect the Torah. He wants to respect the law. But the man says, I don't need the law. I got Jesus. And I'm going, I kind of identify with the guy, you know? I kind of think, yeah, maybe I would have done the exact same thing. Go and tell people. 
So he's taken this man who's ostracized, who's by himself, who, long, who knows how long it was before he ever, since he has touched, felt the human touch of a person. And Jesus touched him. How long has it been since he felt human touch? And he gets up and he takes this ostracized man who suddenly becomes this amazing evangelist out there. Restores the outcast. I can't blame him one bit. Well, the last line of this whole section says, Still, they kept coming to him from everywhere. That is not a footnote. That is the whole point. That's the whole point of these, these three sequences. That everybody was coming to him from everywhere. Touchable people are healed people. And healed people produce huge effects. They produce huge results. To follow Christ is not just to be a head learner. To follow Christ is not just to be a heart learner. To follow Christ has to be a life learner. The whole life. The mother-in-law was healed not just to feel better, but to serve. The ostracized leper was not healed just to be clean, but to be an evangelist. To spread it. And I think throughout Mark, we see this thing over and over and over again. This point that he keeps repeating over again. Do you get the point? Do you understand? Do you, are you prepared to follow? Are you ready to be a disciple? Are you ready to practice contemplation and action? Are you ready to be in, involved and agent in implementing the kingdom of God? And that's what Mark is asking us at every single scene as we look through this book. Are you ready to do this? Are you ready to implement, be an agent for the implementation of the kingdom of God? Are you ready to follow Jesus? And so, <clears throat> we're back where we started. Changes on the margins can have huge effects. It doesn't have to come from the top down. Individual changes can become contagious. And the results are rapid and dramatic. And to me, that sums up the book of Mark. That Jesus is both the ends and the means. The ends do not justify the means. When we get into some of the things, well, this is, this is what we want to do, and if I have to fudge a little bit over here, no, that doesn't work. Jesus is both the ends and the means. And unfortunately, the church through the history, has taken the sword of the gospel and made it a gospel of the sword. And the church in the history has also withdrawn and become pure, maybe, and safe, but useless. And this is what we are called to do. St. Francis says, We have been called to heal the wounded, to unite what has fallen apart, and bring home all those who have lost their way. All three of these events, the crowd gathers, Jesus has confirmed that, that this is what they've been waiting for, this is the fulfillment of what God is saying. Uh, everywhere in all three of these episodes, Jesus speaks out against death, he speaks out against fever, he speaks out against evil spirits, he, speaks, he restores the, Ill, the outcast, he, he heals the infirm, the ill, 
He, uh, he recovers the scorn of the oppressed people, the powerless, the Greek, the Jew. The only criteria in all of this is willingness to be touched. That's it. That's the only thing, is to be the leper, the mother-in-law. It's just the willingness to be touched by Jesus. His body <clears throat> mirrors ours. He takes on our weakness. He takes on our broken body. He takes on the attacks from the enemy. He, tax, he brings on his illness, our illness. He is sacrificed for our injustice, for our cruelty, for our codes of purity. He offers his body in place of ours. He offers his flesh and blood in the place of ours, and he carries it with him. Isn't it incredible that we have an injured God? That our God was willing to be injured? But it is from these injuries that he has risen. That he has risen from the dead and he offers himself as bread of life and cup of forgiveness. And that's what we're going to celebrate this morning. This is a Christian ritual but it's not a blind ritual. It's something that we do that transforms us. And symbolically, we take in the body as the bread of life, and we take in the cup as the cup of forgiveness. A lot of people will say that it is our weakness that unites us, that it is our um, suffering that brings us together. And that's what we always just say, oh, well, they're only human, and so we kind of accept them. But that's not, I don't think that's true. I think it's our suffering that isolates us. I think it's our sickness, our diseases, our secrets. Our, those are the things that put up the barriers between us. And I believe it's the true healing that unites us, that we come together as healed people that unites us. And that's one of the aspects of breaking, of breaking bread together, of having communion, that this is a community that's been mended. The fever breaks, the unclean is restored, and people serve. All it takes is a willingness to be touched by the healing hand. That's it. So I'm going to invite you this morning. We're going to take communion seated in our, our chairs this morning that um, you let the healing hand hold your hand, that you let the touch of the Savior touch you. And I want to invite anybody, if you perceive yourself to be unclean, you perceive yourself to be unworthy, you perceive yourself to be unequal, you are welcome at the table. And I ask you to take the bread and the cup with us this morning. So I'm going to ask...